<clears throat> thanks very much, Shailen, and uh, thanks to both you and uh, Polly for organizing this conference. Uh, I really wish we could all be together in person, but it's so nice to see some familiar faces and gather in any way we can. Um, so I'll just uh, share my screen. That all right? Uh, all right, yes. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'll begin uh, with an anecdote, uh, which I think may help illustrate some of the themes that I'm attempting to explore in this paper. Um, so in early December 1785, Mudoji Bosle, the frail and battle-worn Maratha ruler of Nagpur, visited the burial shrine of the warrior Saint Abdul Rahmandul Hasha on the banks of the Sofan River just northeast of the city of Elichpur, or today's Achalpur, in central India. Mudoji knew the shrine well, for he had financed the construction of its outer walls after the death of his friend Ismail Khan Panni, the Nawab of Elichpur, in 1775. Before returning to his camp, he then visited the Nawab's successor, Salabat Khan, at his home, and they sat together and chatted for a few hours. The news writer who reported this account um, said that just as the Nabab was about to make a gift of a set of robes, Mudoji declared, you are my son, Jiranjib. I do not wish to take your robes. Having dispensed with the usual formalities, they instead enjoyed some fun before Mudoji departed. He lingered on for a few more days to finalize some negotiations with the Nabab and his brother. Uh, but in the next couple of years, his health deteriorated until he contracted the bad fever and died. Uh, Salabat and Bhalo Khan visited Nagpur in the following month to offer their condolences to his son Raghuji. But when they tried to present him with a shawl and a vessel of holy water, he echoed his father's words, you and I are brothers, Bandhu, there is no need for this. Though they pressed him to accept, he refused. And together the two families grieved for another week or so before taking their leave. So let's pause to consider the social, political, and religious affiliations of these two lineages who came to rule the former Mughal province of Berar. Mudoji Bhosle of Nagpur was a Hindu Maratha Raja who paid obeisance to the Chaturpati at Satara, while Salabat Khan of Elichpur was a Muslim Afghan Nawab serving at the pleasure of the Nizam of Hyderabad. Historians have long presumed that the Marathas and the Nizam nursed in inexorable antagonism fueled by their conflicting ambitions within the late Mughal political order. Indeed, they clashed in several major battles and countless minor scuffles over the course of the 18th century. At the same time, we know that they ratified several peace treaties and implemented practical measures for the execution of a mode of joint rule over the Mughal provinces of the Deccan, known as Do Amali. In this essay, uh, I want to explore uh, how, from the vantage point of the province of Berar, diplomatic negotiation, Jawab Sawal, or Jabsal in Marathi, through the exchange of written correspondence, treaties, oaths and sentiments, and acts of kindness was indispensable to this project of joint rule. Um, but the fruits of diplomacy also exceeded practical governance. Uh, amidst a very complex web of uh, competing rights, obligations, and jurisdictions, an intimately felt friendship blossomed between the Maratha Rajas of Nagpur and the Afghan Nawabs of Elichpur. Uh, friendship is a useful category for analyzing 18th century diplomacy, but it's also one that contemporary writers in both Marathi and Persian used to characterize the relations of these Afghan and uh, Maratha soldier adventurers who became little kings in the Deccan. Uh, Emma Flatt, Daud Ali, and other scholars have recently shown that friendship 
has been an important organizing concept in South Asian politics, in ethics, and an intellectual network spanning the progenit world. Um, borrowing some observations from earlier studies by Alan Bray and others, they've emphasized that early modern friends understood their most intimate correspondence to be acts of political self-fashioning. Here I want to build on this insight by exploring the ways in which uh, the language of friendship um, and its proximity to the language of kinship uh, structured interstate diplomacy at different levels of authority. Um, neither absolute fealty nor absolute antagonism friendship articulated the multiple potentialities of a relationship in flux. By the time of Mudoji Bosley's visit to the shrine of Abdul Rahman Dulha the Rajas of Nagpur and the Nawabs of Elijpur considered themselves to be almost brothers. But uh, this fictive kinship was neither natural nor premeditated. Rather, it was the outcome of recurring diplomatic processes of conflict resolution and reconciliation. Uh, the, uh, the events discussed in this paper transpired in the far northeastern corner of the Deccan, in the lands that became known as Berar in Mughal Persian, as Varhad in the Maratha Empire, and as Vidarbha in modern Marathi. Um, Bounded in the north by the Satpura Hills and, and in the east by the Varda River, Berar's agrarian core was the fertile valley that stops at the Ajanta mountain range, bisecting the province from east to west. Under the Bahmani Sultanate, Berar was a frontier outpost defended by the hill forts of Gavilgar and Narnala. And towards the end of the 15th century, the Bahmanis began to cede control over the, over the province to their general, Fatullah Imad al-Mulk, the founder of the breakaway Imad Shahi Sultanate. Um, as uh, Roy touched on, it was briefly absorbed by the Nizam Shahs of Ahmadnagar, only to be conquered by the Mughal Emperor's uh, son Murad in 1596, and then remained one of the six Mughal Subas of the Deccan until it was acquired by Nizam al-Mulk in 1724. Um, while the Mughal Subedar of Berar had his headquarters in Elijpur, uh, vestiges of the Mughal past have endured in ruins and inscriptions scattered across the province. Most notably, Prince Murad himself built uh, a residence at Shapur that survives today. Uh, Akbar's famous biographer, Abu Fazl, mentioned this structure in his entry on Bidar in the Ayn Yaqbari. Borrowing uh, many uh, of its details from the Ayn, the Savoniya Deccan, composed in 1783 by Munim Khan al Hamdani al Arangabadi, includes uh, a more detailed description of Bidar. And I just want to highlight um, one part of that description in which uh, he states, the seat of the governor of Bidar is the city of Elijpur. In the center are two rivers named the Sofan and the Bichan, and both of these rivers join the Purna. The Darga of Rahman Shah Quds Allah, north of the eminent city of Elijpur on the Sofan River, is venerable. The Ur's lamps of that elder are famous. Because the Maratha Bosleys in recent years became co-conquerors of the province, its, its affairs fell into disorder. So by the time of the Savonese composition, amidst, amidst the politics of the late 18th century Deccan, the capital of the shrine and the problem of joint rule had come to define the recent history of Bidar province. To take a step back, Maratha raids into Bidar began in the late 17th century after the Mughal conquest of the Deccan and the Chhatrapati's flight to Jinji. But diplomatic negotiation was also critical to advancing Maratha claims to the revenues of the Deccan and indeed to the recognition of Maratha sovereignty. Both the exiled Prince Shahu and his aunt Sarabai Bosle petitioned Delhi directly, as well as the governor of the Deccan, Zulfikar Khan, hoping that he'd act as an intermediary in acquiring an imperial Farman. 
At the same time, the Marathas came to a separate agreement for the forfeiture of the Chab with his uh, Afghan deputy Daud Khan Pandi. The historian Kafi Khan in the Muntakaba Lubab uh, noted that Daud Khan's right-hand man was on such friendly terms with the Marathas that they, quote, boiled together like milk and sugar and worked by subterfuge. Nizam al-Mulk secretary uh, Lala Mansaram was even more critical of this pact, commenting that Daud Khan was always, quote, always losing himself in friendship with the chiefs of the Marathas. Finally, uh, as, uh, as we know, in the first quarter of the 18th century, Peshwa Balaji Vishwanath secured imperial grants for the rights to Chaturdeshmukhi and Swarajya. Um, so the Nagpur Bhosles, among the leading soldiers who joined the resurgent Maratha campaigns was Parsuji Bhosle, who eventually received the title of Sena Saheb Subha and orders to collect tribute in Berar and Gondwana. His son Kanhoji was one of many Maratha generals whose loyalties were tested by the emergence of an alternate source of patronage in the person of Chinkilich Khan Nizam Umok, the Mughal statesman and founder of the successor state of Hyderabad. By 1730, Khan Hoji had received a Jagir from the Nizam in Kurhad Vargana. Though a very frequent occurrence throughout the Maratha-Nizam conflict, this kind of defection was considered to be an act of insubordination and a grave breach of trust in diplomatic relations. Hence, articles of agreement commonly included the condition that neither party should offer refuge to the other's followers. Regarding uh, Khan Hoji's case in particular, the Peshwa's agent Ambaji Purandre, in a letter to an envoy with the Nizam, explained, there is an agreement that the Nawab should not take on our people and we should not take on the Nawab's people. Now that Khan Hoji has been taken on after he absconded, how will this provision be implemented? To remedy the situation, Kanhoji sent a negotiator to Sapara to, quote, make promises on Shabbat of loyalty at the feet of the Maharaja, and himself made a personal visit sometime between 1733 and 34. But before their relationship could be mended, he hastened back to Bedar, uh, prompting the Chaturpati to order his nephew, Raghuji Bhosle, to detain him. Raghuji then received his uncle's extensive revenue rights in Bedar and Gondwana and swiftly established his own capital at Nagpur. So now the competing successors to Mughal rule in Berar were frequently at odds. The Savoni records that Raghuji Bhosle killed a Jagirdar in the district of Kerala and seized his villages and a fort at Salbardi. More outrageously, in 1737, he besieged Elijpur when Chad payments had not been paid and the Subedar Shujaat Khan lost his life in the ensuing battle. This uh, incident was reported in several texts uh, and in one from the 1820s, the Nagpur minister Yashwantra Ramchandra and son of the Bhosle's envoy Ramchandra Dado relayed an intriguing story about the killing of Shujaat Khan to the assistant of the British resident. He stated, Raghuji Bhosle maintained a friendship with the governor of Alajpur, Shujaat Khan, as if he was his kin. Apaji Pant worked for Shujaat Khan as a revenue collector. Based on the landlord's complaint, Shujaat Khan sat him on a donkey, shaved his head, and sent him out of the city. Apaji Pant went to Raghuji Bhosle, realizing that the dishonor of Brahmins would occur in his Hindu kingdom. Raghuji Bhosle mustered his cavalry and traveled to Alajpur. He fought Shujaat Khan about two coasts from the village of Bhugao and cut off his head. Taking possession of his kettle drum, he stayed with his cavalry. He surrounded Alajpur with the intention of looting the city. There was no ruler there this imperial city and dwelling place would come to ruin. 
a Patan, and I should say this may be, I'm not sure who this individual is, this might be a collapsing of different temporalities referring to the later Nawabs. Uh, a Patan sent Ramchandra Dado to conduct negotiations to Rab Suwal and, and settle the amount of the tribute. So this testimony uh, betrays uh, the tensions produced by Maratha Nizam joint revenue collection in Bidar and their intersection with the ways in which the Mosley Rajas may have enacted a certain modality of Hindu kingship. It, it may well have equally been shaped by the creative distortions of memory. And while we have no evidence to corroborate the particulars, I just want to highlight its initial assertion, which is that a friendship akin to family subsisted between the Bosleys of Nagpur and the Nizam's governor of Elijpur. Uh, the friendship was a strategic one insofar it was rooted in shared financial incentives and diplomatic norms. At the same time, it was not strategic to appear to be a false friend. Though unsentimental, friendship was not devoid of sentiment. Rather, preserving friendships required the constant exchange of convincing expressions of trust and affection by means of Jawab Salam. Um, and so to uh, look more closely at how these ideas of uh, friendship and concrete issues of governance coexisted in Jawab Salam diplomacy, let us look at a series of letters sent by Nasir Jung, second eldest son of Nizam Umok to Raguchi Bosle. Several of these letters concerned um, everyday matters of local administration. Uh, for example, in a 1748 letter, Nasir Jung requested cooperation with an official who had been dispatched to Faranja to inquire with the village headman about affairs of state. The same official also notified him that, quote, some people of the strong and powerful ones, that is, Raguchi were demanding excessive amounts of chat from the Fergana Mahur and others since last year. They were becoming the source of the cultivator's confusion and damage. So it should be written to them that they should refrain from countless molestations and they should be warned not to enrage an extortion of any kind. So such complaints of improper uh, dunning, stern orders to redress them, these were endemic to revenue administration generally, but their swift resolution was especially important in negotiating across layer jurisdictions. At the same time, Nasir Jung's correspondence um, expounds on very abstract ideas of friendship. For example, he writes, in the exemplars of ethics, it has been written that the test of a friend, is that whenever a rough and arduous event occurs, full and complete trust is available. Indeed, the rule for gold is that it emerges unsullied out of the test of a crucible. Such confidence in Raghuji's sincerity uneasily coexisted with suspicions of infidelity. Another letter intimates, we have trusted the refuge of courage, that is, Raghuji Bosle, in these matters, but as it has been scrupulously written, should any accident occur, he should take care in these matters and chastise those who show signs of audacity. It is inevitable that the arrival of such news to the ears of the sworn allies of that refuge of courage will be the cause of crimes. In keeping with these admonitions, Raghuji was enjoined to cooperate with the new Subedar at Alijpur to resolve the complications produced by a situation in which uh, two separate coteries of tax collectors were canvassing the province each year. Um, and so because of this uh, rivalry over revenue over the course of the 1750s, the friendship between Nagpur and Elijpur uh, really emerged through conflict and reconciliation and eventually assumed a more stable character through the so-called Sat Chalis Revenue Agreement of 1757. This refers to the proverbial 60-40 distribution of revenues uh, of the province between the Nizam and the Bosleys 
Um, uh, but the, the most important thing to note is that the agreement replaced a, a much more haphazard pattern of chalk collection. So it represented a determination uh, of the delegation of mobile sovereignty at the provincial level and offered a potential respite from an almost 30-year contest between the Nizam and the Marathas. It was the outcome of the efforts of diplomatic representatives from both sides, and these included two Pani Afghan officers, Sultan Khan and his cousin and son-in-law, Sadamas Khan. They met on several occasions over the course of February 1757, swapped gifts of cloth, horses, and robes, uh, and even on one occasion, it's reported that Sadamas Khan invited the Maratha general Raguji Kurande to his home in Elijpur and gifted him with several uh, lengths of cloth. So the terms and conditions of this agreement were written in the form of 15 separate articles. Based on the uh, extant copies that we have and the overall lexicon of the text, it's possible that they were first committed to paper in Marathi and then transcribed and partially translated into Persian in June 1757. The first eight articles concern issues of revenue uh, in certain named parganas and in territories designated Jagiri Sarkar or the territories assigned to Nizam al-Mulk as Subedar of the Deccan, the Nizam's government would be entitled to a 55% uh, of the yield and the Bosleys to 45%. Um, but the second category of terms concerned the basic shared provisions of joint rule, encouraging cultivation, protecting officials, punishing rebels, and refraining from in intervening in internal politics or giving shelter to, to disaffected individuals. Uh, crucially, too, uh, Dhanoji Bhosle's son, Sabaji Bhosle, was to be introduced into the imperial service through Nizam Ali Khan. Uh, in a final clause, the two governments committed to not deviating from the agreement. Um, mutual fidelity to this promise committed to paper and witnessed by God offered to transform conflict and division into compromise and reciprocity. But the success of the agreement, of course, depended upon those who entered into it. Um, so Ismail Khan, the son of the soldier diplomat Sultan Khan, who I just mentioned, became the Subedar of Berar, um, as well as the founder of a Nawab ruling household at Elijpur. Um, compared to the Rohila Afghan chieftaincies of the north, or even uh, the Fundi and Miana states of the Karnatic, there's relatively sparse documentation of the early history um, of this family. The first Nawab Ismail Khan earned only a brief entry in the Ma'usir al-Umarah. Cryptically, this entry remarked that, quote, because Dhanoji Bhosle, who was uh, at the time the proprietor of the aforementioned province, Berar, on the part of the Marathas, knew him from long back. Ismail Khan put off correcting the design of the administration. It then concludes by commenting that the Nawab's addiction to intoxicants and general a sense of pride distracted him from his duties. So it's this entry which may be a source for the Savonis criticism of Maratha-Afghan friendship, specifically that it encouraged misgovernment. However, if we turn to different sources, we find that it was also the basis for embellishing a built landscape of Islamic piety honored by uh, Hindus and Muslims alike. So for a fuller account of Ismail Khan's lineage, we turn to a colonial period text the Tariqi Amjadia of Syed Amjad Hussein, composed in 1869 by the Khatib of the Jama Masjid of Elijpur, the Tariq sketches the early history of the family's migration from Afghanistan to Delhi, then to the Rajput states, and finally southwards to Berar. Uh, 
It notes that their growing status and prestige in the 18th century actually spurred the development of Elijpur city. So Sarmas Khan obtained a Jagir west of Elijpur, which then became the neighborhood of Sarmaspura, while the area of Sultan Khan's Jagir towards the south was called Sultanpura. Um, the family also built a new residence near Elijpur fort and established a presence in Daryapur and other uh, rural districts in Berat. So the Bosley's bond with this family materialized in frequent visits uh, in gestures of courtesy, hospitality, and generosity. And Sayyid Amjad Hussein offers uh, an interesting story about one such occasion. Uh, and you can read along if you'd like. Um, at the time when the long-standing familiarity and friendship between Raja Mudoji Bosle and Muhammad Ismail Khan was perfect, Mudoji, out of unhappiness with his brother Sabaji, came to Elijpur. With a pure heart and full faith, he paid a visit to Hazrat Shah Abdul Rahman Ghazi and asked assistance from the spirit of victory to obtain the throne of Nagpur. And this is a time when he was um, competing with his brother um, for uh, the succession. For several days, he was happily occupied in riding and hunting. Then one day, sitting side by side on a horse-drawn palanquin in full regalia, they set out from the Darga of Shah Rahman Ghazi. In the middle of an intersection, two armed individuals sent by Sabaji approached the palanquin, stabbed Mudhoji with their swords, and took flight. Being wounded, Mudhoji was conveyed to the court inside the small fort as befitted a respectable man in a fearful state. Every doctor was too afraid to dress his wounds until Muhammad Rustam, the attending physician of Ismail Khan, on the order of his master, bravely applied 16 stitches to his limbs and one stitch to his lip, earning a reward of 17 gold coins. Other accounts actually indicate that the would-be assassins were not followers of Sabaji at all, but rather Afghan mercenaries in Mudoji's own employ who were fed up with not receiving their wages. Um, but these other accounts do corroborate that Ismail Khan saw to it that his wounds received swift medical attention. Um, so by providing this safe refuge from the hazards of politics, Ismail Khan treated Mudoji like an honored guest, a friend, and even a fellow seeker of the blessings of Abdul Rahman Bil Hasha. And here I should uh, briefly note that this figure was a local reimagination of the broader legend of the warrior Saint Mion, said to be a nephew of the 11th century conqueror Mahmud of Ghazni, who abandoned his nuptials to pursue glory and martyrdom on the battlefields of Hindustan. Mion's historical memory has uh, been extensively studied in Shahid Amin's recent book, Conquest and Community, where he discusses an English summary of this text, the Tariq i Amjadiyah's colorful account of the battle between a king called Il and Abdul Rahman. Um, we have some fragmentary evidence um, from central provinces gazetteers that the legend and worship of Abdul Rahman found links with another narrative, that of the 1400 saints who accompanied the Delhi Sultan Alauddin Khilji to the Deccan, uh, and whose burial shrines can be found at places in Behrar like Dahihanda, Malegaon, and Mongol Pier. Um, but hundreds of years after the time of these events, Mudoji Ponsle of Nagpur joined the community of Abdul Rahman Dulhasha celebrants by aiding in the reconstruction of his Darga at Elishpur. And the occasion for um, his sponsorship of these renovations to the Darga was Ismail Khan's death in battle, as I mentioned earlier. This was against his rival, Ibrahim Beg Dhansa Zafar Uddallah. Mudoji Ponsle ordered the construction of a sandstone wall creating an enormous outer courtyard, which today features winding pathways, trees, uh, and additional grave sites. 
Its construction took place between 1776 and 79 under the supervision of one Sheikh Izaldin and the superintendent of Elichpur Fort, Jam Singh. Uh, three new arched gateways were built on the western, southern, and eastern sides, and these were topped by small rectangular pavilions uh, with six smaller arches and four rectangular minarets. Um, they also built a, a second, a smaller western gate that currently serves as the main entrance to the shrine. The fact that Mudaji initiated this project in the years immediately after Ismail Khan's death suggests that it may have been a memorial to his friend with whom he shared battle scars, a regard for the Ghazi's power, and the responsibilities of ruling uh, a province. Let's just have a closer look at the inscriptions above the gateways. Uh, many of them credit the Nagpur Raja, but those adorning the southern and eastern gates elaborate on his regard for the miracle working power of Abdul Rahman. The first hemistitch of the southern gates inscription reads, through the favor of Shah Rahman, the pearl in the crown of kings, King Mudoji achieved his propitious desires in the world. Another included on this uh, slide reads, in the name of God, the merciful, the beneficent, in truth and certainty, higher than heaven, the peak of this court of the ruler of the faith, Shah Rahman, a martyr and also a hero, at whose door kings bowed their foreheads, inasmuch as by the order of Raja Mudaji, it was constructed by Sheikh Amir al-Din, a heavenly voice said to me, look and say, this is the gate of the highest paradise. So here the figure of Abdul Rahman is inscribed not just as a Qazi and a Shahid, but as a powerful and compassionate overlord to whom kings willingly submitted. Um, might we read Mudoji's fortification of the shrine with an outer court as an act of willing submission? At the very least, he hoped that it would lead to the fulfillment of his political desires and the endurance of a friendship with the Afghan co-rulers of Bedard. Um, just some concluding reflections. Um, I think that uh, we need to think about how 18th century diplomacy in the Deccan uh, might tell us something more about the making of the Maratha Empire. Um, in his classic essay, The Slow Conquest, Stuart Gordon offers uh, an account of Maratha rule in Malwa through the gradual penetration of the Peshwa's revenue collectors. Gordon's conquest to administration model may only be partially applicable to Berar. Um, actually, more research needs to be done on revenue returns in the Do Amali provinces of the Deccan especially after these diplomatic agreements were established. But even the earlier work of M.A. Naim has shown that Maratha yields very greatly in the late 18th century. At the same time, the situation we've been describing does not quite align with Maratha expansion into Aritha, Bengal, and parts of Rajasthan, where diplomacy seems to have been more of a cover for the coercive extraction of tribute. So we have to think about a shifting gradient of imperial sovereignty and local control across time and space. What the Bidar case might help show is the way in which intercultural and interstate diplomatic negotiation, letter writing, treaty making, oath taking, and of course, uh, making friends, was critical across the fragmented and interwoven jurisdictions of Maratha empire building. Uh, and with that, I will end things, and I'm very much looking forward to your questions. Thanks, Dominic. That was uh, excellent, uh, particularly involving the two um, traditional sort of rivals and their interaction. Um, I just uh, wanted to confirm is that um, I did not see any of the slides moving. Uh, I hope everybody else has, uh, and this is something to do with uh, uh, the, the way the, the team has been set up. But um, 
I would uh, like to see if there are any questions now uh, in the chat box. Anyone? Um, any of the organizers which are in the room? Um, Polly, Shraddha, Rahul, Anjali, anyone who would like to ask a live question while people type their questions in the in the in the in the box? Um, can I just check, uh, Dominic? You, when I when I was listening to you, the slides didn't move, so I couldn't see them. I wonder, oh. can somebody else out in the audience t let us know? Did you all? Was it just the organisers that were stuck on a slide that we couldn't see? Could, could anybody out there in the audience let us know? Could you also see the slides too? Yeah. Um, no one's typed anything. <laughs> I couldn't see them moving either. Uh, uh, nobody, nobody seems to have. Uh, Frank Conlon says we did not see the slides either. So, uh, Dominic, did you actually move them while you were talking? <laughs> I I did. I did. Um, All right. Okay. Then there is something. Something has gone uh, astray because we did not see the slides moving, and we thought that you were not moving them, but obviously you were. Um, but the, the slides were lost, unfortunately. Shall I just um, put up one slide for the Q&A or leave yeah. it? No, no, I mean, uh, I mean that, that we only saw the first slide and it, it the, the presentation just did not move ahead. So that was a bit odd. Never mind. Uh, we'll see uh, for the next presentations. We'll, we'll, we'll see what exactly needs to be done. I, I believe Claire will help us uh, with this uh, if this is the this is a problem. Uh, Dominic, would you just pick out whatever slide you think is most interesting and important that we should you would want us to see and see if you can show it to us just so that um, so that we haven't. Now, now I now I can see them moving, but I yeah. didn't see them moving earlier on. Can you just can you just uh, flick through the slides? Yeah, why not? Uh, so yeah. I'll just I'll just do two minutes. Um, so this was the title slide. Uh, here we have Berar. Um, I had some slides of these uh, uh, stories. Um, I think we can kind of skip over those. This is the Persian and Marathi agreement struck between. Now again, uh, it is not moving. It is only the first slide that you put on. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, now okay. it's moving. Now it moved. All right. So I'll just stick to this view. Right. So uh, as I said, uh, Berar. Yeah. 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 It must be something with the view slide. So here we have the province, um, the agreement uh, which I discussed. Um, and then I think the most important slides really to look at are um, here we have the Darga. This is the, the main entrance, uh, current uh, present day uh, photo. Um, and then here we have um, the detail of the uh, one of the inscriptions. So I can just leave it on this uh, perhaps for a couple minutes. Or yeah, all right. OK, fair enough. That's mm. fine. There, um, um, there are no questions in the. In the in the chat box, uh, hang on a minute. Oh, there are lots of questions. Sorry, beg your pardon. Um, um, yeah. It's everybody saying the slides are moving. Um, Prachi has a question. Uh, she says, wonderful as usual, Dominic, your depth of research for a single diplomatic relationship is great. Keeping in mind Roy's argument earlier about space and regionality, 
I wonder how much your argument would generalize to Maratha diplomacy across other regions too. Uh, uh, yes, thanks so much for that question, Prachi. Um, I think that is a, a question which relates to sort of the concluding reflections, which is that um, we, this seems to have been some a kind of relationship which was encouraged by the problem of joint rule of the inability of the Marathas to establish the kind of local control that they did in Malwa and other regions. At the same time, the density of the relationship seems to have been higher uh, or different than that what we see in the kinds of negotiations say between the Rajput states and the Marathas where you do have agreements, written agreements struck, but not these other gestures um, uh, uh, like the patronage of the Derga. So I think um, it'd be interesting to think about whether this is more generalizable um, in jointly ruled provinces or tributary provinces where there are uh, major lineages that the Marathas um, seek to deal with um, and are incentivized to, to form bonds with. Um, but I think that just remains a question to be explored further. Um, we certainly see these kinds of relationships um, between the Marathas, say, and the Gond rulers, um, where they're also, they, they receive a kind of annual tribute, but at the same time, reinforce the local sovereignty of those rulers. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's a, a an important question that I hope to look into more. Thanks, uh, thanks Dominic. Thanks Prachi as well. There is a question from someone who has logged in as anonymous, uh, so I don't know who this person is, but the question is: Please, would you reflect more on the difference between friendship and kinship, into brackets brotherhood, or is one an idiom for the other, and where might uh, idiomatic priority lie? And how would a notion of friendship include or exclude notions of hostility? And how does I and how does your interpretation confirm a counter Andre Wink's notions of fitna uh, as essential to a non-territorial form of sovereignty in Western Deccan? So plenty of questions here. And we have uh, oh yeah, we have time. That's all right. Right. Um well. I think that the, in terms of the question of um, kinship and friendship, that kinship terms were used quite often to indicate affection, um, intimacy between individuals who did not have a kind of blood kinship relationship. You even see this between, say, the Nagpur Rajas and the Peshwa. Um, just, uh, and I think that really, um, what we see is that they indicate also relations of hierarchy, who is junior, who is senior, and so on, and what kinds of then obligations would follow. Um, whereas with friendship, though those kinship terms are used, um, it also, I think, often connotes tension and some history of conflict that's been overcome and managed. Um, so the another case where we have uh, the, the language of friendship being quite predominant is in relations between the East India Company and the Marathas. And there's a lot of talk of what it means to be a, a true friend or a false friend, um, you know, who is speaking truly or falsely. Um, so there's a kind of uneasiness or tension to friendship that I think um, shows that the way in which, and this gets to the question of Bink and Fitna, of how conflict, um, defection, 
um, splintering of alliances, though that is um, part of is sort of generative for these kinds of friendships. Um, and so I, it's not that that fitna didn't exist or was not important. It's it's that I think the other side of this process of uh, political um, formation is um, reconciliation, conflict resolution, management, um, which um, which has to be looked at together with with fitna. Um, Thanks. Uh, the next question is from Nandini Chatterjee. Um, were there any barriers of spoken language at all between the Afghan Nawabs and the Bhosles? Did they speak in Marathi or in Hindi Urdu? That's an excellent question for which I don't have. Uh, I'm, I'm in need of, of sources to help parse this out. I mean, we know that the Maratha Rajas of Nagpur had envoys who were posted to um, Elichpur. Uh, I mentioned one, Ram Chandra Dado, um, and that they employed munchies to um, pen their correspondence with um, the Nizam, um, with um, the Bengal Nawabs. Um, but we also know that um, they um, that there was some greater familiarity with um, with uh, Hindi in that region um, because of their relations with the Gondrajas. Unfortunately, I think my my answer is going to be insufficient in the sense that I'm I'm really not sure what the, those those kinds of interactions that I was discussing um, whether they would be conducted in some kind of Hindi in Persian. Um, whether they're then reported out into Marathi by the news writers. Um, some of these terms, though, of course, travel between these languages like Gosti. Um, and so I think that, that we can think about, um, you know, shared meanings, um, if not necessarily shared language. Um, but uh, it's something which I, I'm curious to know to know more about myself. Thanks so much. Um, Next question is the last question at, at the moment is by Rachel Sturman and she compliments you by saying that thanks for this fascinating talk, Dominic. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the audience or uh, for the into brackets representation of friendship. Yeah, that's very uh, thank you very much. Um, that's important because um, part of the um, I think one of the counter arguments against a kind of um, modernist notion of friendship is that these are not necessarily private or if they are intimate, they're, they're not, they, they are, are meant to be communicated to some public audience. Um, and I think that, um, I think that if we can imagine the correspondence in which discussions of friendship are happening, being read out to a kind of courtly milieu um, where you have, you know, ministers, envoys, um, scribes, people who are followers um, of these rulers, um, you know, being where it's being indicated what kind of relationship is desired and how, you know, issues of conflict over, say, revenue, other kind of concrete issues might come up, um, that these are public statements of intention to some extent um, that um, nonetheless are reaffirmed through intimate language. Um, so, um, and then, of course, we have a broader audience when this friendship becomes part of the way in which the history of the province is written in the chronicle. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that um, this this is beyond just the interactions between these rulers and is part of how a kind of 
governing structure is set up, and then how a kind of historiography of region is written uh, later on. Thank you. Um, are there any more questions or? Um, yeah, can I sneak a quick one in yeah. rather than typing it? Otherwise we'll run out of time. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, how far, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, it's almost, you know, it's when people start talking about friendship that you have to start worrying about the state of relations kind of thing. That seems to me um, a really, a really fine insight. Um, uh, how far does this language of friendship as a way of um, constructing interstate, um, interclan, um, interlineage uh, relations, how far is it, does it, um, is it common outside the Deccan? Um, uh, is it a kind of Deccany idea? Um, uh, I mean, thinking, you know, very, uh, uh, in very clumsy terms about, you know, the, the, the relations of the Marathas with the, Moog, uh, you know, with, um, uh, uh, with the Mughal court. There's not a, a language of friendship. Friendship doesn't figure there as, as a, 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 an idealisation of how relations should be. So, mm -hmm. so is it the case that this, this idiom for ideal relations is actually most applicable you know, um, uh, within the sort of Deccan state system rather than out very much outside it. Right, yeah, I think um, as you you know that the this kind of language doesn't find much life in correspondence between the Mughals and the Marathas, which adheres to a much more kind of hierarchical um, idiom. And, and, and we see friendship language used in political relations outside of the Deccan Dowd Ali's work, mm. um, for example, talks about this in a very different period. But again, his position seems to be that that the language there was clearly hierarchical. Mm. And um, so I think what is interesting about the Maratha case is that the difficulty of establishing kind of permanent local control, I think in some ways drove and then having kind of constant rivalry in in the sort of fragmented 18th century politics, um, I think gave rise to a more concerted use of this language. Um, but some of the idioms that are used, say in like the Persian writings, are I think could be easily connected to idioms in broader Persianate discourse, ethical discourse, the kinds of writings that say Manakia has talked about. Um, so I I think that um, you you know you you perhaps might have broader usage outside of the political of political relationships than you do. Um, yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dominic. Uh, that was that was fascinating, and uh, um, we should move on. I'm going to hand over my chair to Anjali Nerlekar on Rogers. Um, so welcome, Anjali, and uh, hope uh, you will be able to take us through the next two papers. Um, I would also request the next presenters just every time you log on, just check on this uh, slide business because it would be a good idea just to, you know, before you start talking to see if the slides are moving and not moving or whatever. Anyway, over to you, uh, uh, Anjali, and thanks very much. 